0: You know, when we were first asked to go up to Oregon to start the church there, we were, we were asked by this group of people to come up and start this Calvary Chapel. And it really consisted of about four families. But we went up to kind of do what Joshua Did And that was to spy out the land. And as we went up in the very first meeting that we met with these people out in the out back parts of a little tiny town called Silverton, Oregon, we were meeting this house on a farm. And there was quite a few people there, actually, more than four families, maybe about 30 or so people. And I taught a Bible study that night on how Jesus builds his church and how Jesus is to be the center, the focus, the head of the church, that he's the one that we're to be you know, looking to, pointing to, exalting, seeking to draw near to. And, and I shared with them that if I was going to be a part of any type of church like that, uh, or any type of church, that that was going to need to be the focus of it. And then I opened it up for some questions and answers. And boy, did I get some weird questions. First one, this lady who looked like she belonged in 1960, you know, she looked like this hippie lady. And uh, she says, what do you think about dancing in the spirit, you know? And, and she was like, I could tell, really into it, you know. And so I went through 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 and talked about the gifts and order and all this stuff and as soon as she was done this other guy asked how are you going to handle church discipline you know and I knew what he was thinking you know this lady's going to be trouble you know (laughs) how are you going to deal with her and so it was quite an experience and after that little meeting and we're having cookies and cake and coffee and talking, and this guy who was a police officer comes up to me afterwards, and he says, you know, I'm a police officer. I just want you to know that when you're involved in police work, uh, you, you, first impressions are very, very important, and I just want you to know that I've been sizing you up and down all night long, and I've got you completely figured out, and I won't be back, you know, <laughs> and I'm like, gee, thanks, you know. Lord, what have you got me into, you know? So I needed to say, I left that meeting just kind of going, you know, what in the world am I thinking about, you know, coming to this place? And um, that week, I met with uh, another pastor friend of mine who pastors up there. And he said, you know, that he had a similar experience with a group of people in his area and, and. Uh, that, that what God did was really give them a burden for those people. And so he said to me, he says, you know, you need to pray that if God, this is where God is sending you that he gives you a burden. Well, I did that. And one of the things got really impressed on my heart for the next time, because we were going to meet a week later. The next time that we were going to meet was to have a little bit of worship and then spend time in prayer. And that through, you know, that time of prayer, I would really get some insight into their hearts. And that's really true. When you hear people pray, oftentimes it gives real insight into their hearts. Well, we did that. And it was during that time of prayer. And by the way, some of the weirdos that were there the week before weren't there um, that following week because we weren't going to dance in the spirit and we weren't going to do you know, all these weird things that they were wanting to do. And, uh, and so it was kind of down to this core group of people. And when I heard them pray, and pour out their hearts for their city, and pour out their their hearts for really their little town, and the, the kids in there, and for this church that they so desire, it broke my heart. And right then and there, God gave me that burden for them. Well, in our passage tonight, we are going to see the, the prayers of a woman. A woman that we looked at last week, a woman by the name of Hannah. And just like with those people in Oregon, we get some real neat insights into who this lady was. You see, in chapter one, we saw the prayer of a barren woman, Hannah. Remember, she was broken because she couldn't bear a son. And in that culture, if you couldn't bear a a son or a child, they looked at you and considered you as being cursed by God. And so that was the way that people looked at her. That was the way that she viewed herself. And what made matters worse is that her husband, Elkanah, had another wife. Her name was Penina. And she was fruitful in childbearing. She had quite a few kids. And Penina made Hannah's life miserable because she was barren. She mocked her and teased her and tried to make her jealous because Hannah was Elkanah's favorite. And so Hannah wanted a child to bless her husband, but God had something greater in mind. God was looking for a prophet who would bless the nation. Well, things changed dramatically when Hannah finally prayed and said to the Lord, If you give me a son, I will give him back to you. And that's exactly what the Lord was looking for. He was looking for someone who would be willing Someone that he could bless that would take that blessing and, and, in a sense, give it back to him. Because, you see, God had a special plan for this miracle baby that he was going to bless Hannah with. But he wanted Hannah's heart to be ready for that plan. And so she comes to that place and she prays this prayer. Lord, if you give me this son, I will give him back to you. And that's exactly what God did. He responds. He blesses her. She gets pregnant. She gives birth to a son. She names him Samuel, which his name means God hears. And when Samuel was at that age where he was weaned, probably about three to four years old, she takes him there to Shiloh, to the temple. And she offers him there to the priest. And, and says, look, I'm giving my son to the work of the Lord. And she leaves her son there and she goes with her husband. Well, chapter two is the response of her heart to the blessing that God has given to her. It's no longer the prayer of a barren woman, but now it's the praise of a blessed woman. A woman who has been blessed. And as we consider this prayer tonight, I want to consider what Hannah says here about the Lord. She gives us some awesome insights or descriptions of the Lord for us to consider. But I also want you to see that there's a aspect here to her prayer where she gets very, very real. Very, very real with the Lord and her feelings towards Peninnah. And I point this out because this is a prayer that is recorded here in the Bible. And as we read it, you know, we might read it and go, gosh, that's kind of harsh. But God records this for us to study. And I think one of the things that this points out to us is how much God desires that we would be real with him. How much God desires it when we come before him that we're not just, you know, playing, praying prayers of rote or we're not just, you know, going through a routine, but that we really truly are expressing our hearts and that we are being real with God. And we see that here in Hannah's prayer. So let's begin. Verse one, it says, and Hannah prayed and she said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Now, I love this. Notice she says, My heart rejoices in the Lord, not my heart rejoices in my son, not, you know, my heart rejoices in this beautiful baby that God has given to me. But no, my heart rejoices in the Lord, my God. Notice here, she begins this prayer and it's not a prayer where she's asking God or talking to God and trying to talk him out of this arrangement. God, do you really need my son? Do you really need a prophet? You know, I know I said that I would give him to you, but he's so cute and I love him so much. That's not what she's doing here. She's taking her son. I mean, think about this, her three or four year old son. She's taking him to this priest who we saw in chapter one when he saw her praying. You know, he thought she was drunk there in the temple. And she's giving her son to this man to care for and to raise up and to train up in the things of the Lord. No, she says, I rejoice in the Lord my God. She's rejoicing in the very one who, in essence, was taking her son from her. Why was she doing that? Because, listen, Hannah was a woman of vision. She was a woman who saw the big picture. She was a woman who had that eternal perspective. She was a woman who was able to see things from God's point of view, that God had a plan for this son of hers. And so she gladly gave her son to the Lord and she rejoiced in the Lord because she saw that full scope. That God is good and God is faithful and he is true and his will and way is always best. And he had this plan for her son. Now, as I said, I want to key in on here the way that she describes the Lord. Notice verse 2. She says, No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. First of all, she keys in on the Lord's holiness. No one is holy like the Lord. This word holy speaks of his unspotted purity. That God is completely perfect in every single way, totally righteous or right in all things. He's pure, 100% pure, 100% perfect in all his ways, in everything that he does. And this is an attribute of God that is most often praised in the Bible. In Isaiah chapter 6, it's what the angels are are singing when Isaiah has his vision of the heavenly scene and he sees the Lord sitting upon his throne, the train of his robe filling the temple, and the angels are there and what are they Doing, They're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. John, in his vision there in the book of Revelation, in chapter 4, he's taken into the heavenly scene. What does he see? Again, the heavenly host. And what are they praising? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. They're keying in on this aspect of God, His holiness. That he is right and true and perfect and pure in all of his ways. And so, first of all, she magnifies his holiness. And next she mentions his incredible stability. She says there is is no rock or nor is there any rock like our God. David wrote in Psalm 18, verse 2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. Speaking there of of the stability of a life built upon the rock. You know, the people today are seeking to build their lives on so many different things. So many things that they want to stand upon. So many things that they want to build their, their lives upon. But listen, there is no rock like our God. There is no stable foundation Like our God, any other foundation, Jesus said, than that which is built upon him and his word and what the word says about who he is, is like shifting sand that when the storms come and rage against that, that foundation is going to be a movable one. And so many people, we see their lives built upon these movable foundations. And when things get rough, man, all of a sudden they start getting shaky. Why? Because there's no stability. But how many times have we seen... In the body of Christ, when brothers or sisters are going through the most horrific of trials—cancer, or the loss of a child, or some incredible illness—or they're they're there in the hospital and they're you know it, it's getting real nitty gritty and down to the end—and you go and visit them in that situation and you see them, and it's like there's just this peace. Why? Because their lives have been built upon the rock, Jesus Christ. And so she praises God for his stability. Verse 3, talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. Now understand here, notice there's a shift. She's she's no longer talking to the Lord here anymore. She's not saying to the Lord, you know, uh, talk no more so very proudly, God. That's not what she's saying. Now she shifts and now she's starting to talk about Penina. She's starting to talk about her rival. We see her getting real. She's talking here about Panina and maybe anyone else who ridiculed her because of her barrenness. And then she says, for the Lord is the God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. In other words, the Lord knows how you've been treating me and he's weighing your actions, Panina. That's what she's saying here. Verse four, the bows or bows of the mighty men are broken. And those who stumbled are girded with strength and those who were full have hired themselves out for bread and the hungry have ceased to hunger. And she, she's making mention here of a truth of the Bible, how God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That those who exalt themselves, the Bible says that they will be humble. But those who humble themselves before, before the Lord, they will be exalted. They will be lifted up. She continues on, even the barren has borne seven and she who has many children has become feeble. Now here's what's interesting. After the Lord blessed Hannah with the birth of Samuel, she's going to have five more children. So she was close here, you know. She, she says even the baron has borne seven. She ends up bearing six. She was close here. But notice, you know, kind of her, her heart here towards, you know, Penina. The one who has many is going to become feeble. And what's interesting about this is we don't hear about Penina again in the Scripture. But Hannah, she goes on to be blessed. Verse 6, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. And he brings low and he lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the beggar from the ash heap. To set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. Now Hannah is telling us this. She's going back here to to talk about the Lord. And she's telling uh, telling us this about God. That he's a God of resurrection. He's a God of resurrection. He brings the dead to life again. He brings the poor and makes them rich. He lifts up the lowly and he raises up those who have been cast down. And in one sense this is almost a self-portrait. Of herself that she's talking about here. And this is what God has done to her. This is how she was made to feel in that society that her womb was dead, that she was considered poor because she didn't have a child. She was uh, down, she had been brought down, she was a beggar. For years she begged God to bless her and give her a child. But this is what blesses me though is that Hannah saw herself as being wealthy, not because of her possessions. Not because now she's cruising around in a Porsche or, you know, not because now she's got six camels or no, nothing like that. But she sees herself as being rich, wealthy because of who the Lord was to her. Because as we read there in chapter one, the Lord remembered her. She gave up her son, but she still considered herself to be blessed. And then she says this verse eight, the latter part for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. This is a reference to the sustaining power of God over the earth that he holds the earth in its orbit. And and he he created the earth and he sustains the earth. He keeps everything there intact like pillars he will guard the feet of his saints. He's a garter, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength, no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven, he will thunder against them. He protects his people, in other words, she's saying here. And the Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is a beautiful song of praise. Coming from the lips of this woman who has just given her son to the Lord because this is the perception that she has because her eyes are on God. Her focus is on the Lord. She's exalting the goodness of God. She's not wallowing in pity. She's not looking at her circumstance and going, you know, why me? But she's seeing this situation and she sees the Lord and his faithfulness. And she's proclaiming that and praising God for that. And then in verse 11, we read, then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah. But the child, and I want you to underline this phrase. We're going to come back to it. Ministered to the Lord before Eli, the priest. Elkanah and Hannah, they go home. And they leave Samuel there and he ministers that phrase to the Lord. We pick it up in verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt and they did not know the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servants would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. And then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. And the priest would take for himself all that the flesh had brought up so that they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. And if the man said to him, they should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires. He would then answer him, no, but you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. And therefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Now, in the Old Testament, the Lord had assigned the priest a portion of the sacrifice, It was the way that the Lord allowed for the priests to provide for themselves and their family. But here's what the sons of Eli were doing. They were taking of the best Portion of the meat, the portion that really was meant to go to the Lord. And they were taking of that portion and they were taking of it even when it was raw. And the idea being there that they were probably, you know, kind of storing up all of this meat, kind of had a little storehouse type of a thing going, and they were keeping it for themselves. And they were even doing so to the point that if people were unwilling to give into their request that they were going to take it from them by force. And the sad result of their actions is seen in verse 17 when it says that they caused the people to abhor the sacrifice of the Lord. In other words, their actions made it so that people didn't even want to to go and sacrifice because it was such an unpleasant experience as they would come and meet with these people. Guys, you know there are some pastors today who possess a wealth of information that the that they're able to bless and give out to the body of Christ that helps us grow but unfortunately there are also those in ministry today who are only interested in possessing wealth they're only interested in making themselves fatter if you would And they use their position to get rich. Some pastors are are very, very good at feeding the flock of God, but others are only interested in fleecing the flock of God, taking from the flock of God. And they have their schemes on how to take advantage of God's people. Now, the Bible makes it clear that a workman or a minister is worthy of his hire. Or in other words, that a a minister of the gospel can be compensated for his work and for his ministry. But it's sad today because of the abuse of some people who call themselves, quote unquote, ministers of the gospel who use that position to make themselves rich and they wear their fancy suits and drive their fancy cars and live in their, you know, enormous multimillion dollar houses and that type of thing. That what's happened is it's really caused many, many in the world today to abhor the church, to abhor the ministry. You tell them they're, you're a pastor and, and, and it's like, you know, right away they're, they're thinking, OK, what do you want? And it's sad. That that's the reaction of so many today because of people like that. People like these two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. And it's sad. And I think that that's one of the reasons why you know, we never really make giving a real issue here. Not because it's not important. The Bible talks about it an awful lot. But because of, of the, the abuses that we don't ever, ever want to be put into that, that category. And so when it comes to that time in the service, it's simply, hey, the ushers are going to come forward. And that's all that we say. And, you know, maybe that's, we, we've gone to the other extreme. Because the Bible does talk a lot about that. But, you know, it's because of, of that type of abuse in the church today that that, you know, it makes it makes it something that that you can feel uncomfortable about. Well, we see here as we go on in the story how this is such a, a serious thing to God, the, the stumbling of his people. Let's pick it up in verse 18. It says, but Samuel ministered before the Lord, even as a child wearing a linen, linen ephod. And moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, the Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. And then they would go to their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and she bore three sons and two daughters. And meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before Now, here we see this incredible contrast. Eli's sons are ripping off the people, causing them to abhor worship and abhor sacrifice. But Samuel is ministering to the Lord and before the Lord. Notice there, again, underline or circle that phrase. We saw there in verse 11, he ministered to the Lord. We see here in verse 18, he ministered before the Lord. And because of that, his family here is being blessed. Hannah has five more children. She gave God one. And God gives her back five. And Samuel is growing before the Lord as a young man of God. He's growing. He's maturing. But notice what we read there in verse 22. Now, Eli was very old. And he heard everything his sons did to all of Israel and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now, here we see a principle that is found in the scriptures that is true of humanity. And it's this, that sin and compromise always lead to more sin and compromise. First of all, we see these boys ripping people off. They're taking the best portion of the meat, that which belonged to the Lord. And now they're taking of their women. The the women that belong to to other men, women who were the, the wives of other husbands. And these guys are going even deeper into their sin. They're using their place of position to take advantage of God's people and know this sin is always progressive. It's always progressive. You know, the occasional pot smoker doesn't stay that way very long. You know, he goes from occasionally lighting up to, you know, once a week. And then it's once a day. And then, it you know, he's moving on to using harder drugs. And and, and it's just something built into, you know, in a sense, our fleshly, sinful human nature. Sin is progressive. It gets darker and darker by the month. And darker and darker by the year. It gets more progressive. Well, when Eli hears of the sins of his sons... He confronts them. Verse 23. Notice what he says here. So he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. Know, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. And if one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Catch that last phrase. Especially those of you who aspire to be in the ministry. Serving the Lord, understand, is a great blessing. It's a great thing to be called by the Lord to serve Him, especially in a full-time type of capacity. But understand this, with that comes a great amount of accountability. With that comes a higher accountability. Notice what he says there in verse 25. If a man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, that's what they were doing. They were abusing their office. They were abusing their position. They were causing the people of God to be ripped off. They were causing the people of God to stumble. They were causing the people of God to sin. And God says, if a man does that, who will intercede for him? The Bible tells us that to whom much is given, much is required. And basically what the Lord lays out over and over again in the scriptures is that there is a greater accountability for those who are in ministry because your actions can cause others to stumble. Your actions can cause others to become shipwrecked in their faith. Your actions can cause people to... If your actions are wrong in that place of of ministry, it can cause people to not want to have anything to do with God because they look at you and they associate you with the Lord. And so God warns us who would be in that position of ministry, be in that position of standing before people, representing the Lord. Being a home group leader, being a worship leader, being a Sunday school teacher, you know, to a group of kids in a Sunday school classroom. God warns us about stumbling our brothers and sisters. In fact, in James chapter three, he says this, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Now, that's a sobering reality. That's something that should cause all of us here who are involved in some type of ministry to realize, hey, my actions are going to affect a lot of people. And know this, if you're involved in ministry, people watch you. They watch you. They watch you when you go out to eat. They watch what you order to drink. They watch you when you go to the movies. They watch you when you go to the video store. They're paying attention because you're an example to them. And so they're they're, they're watching you. They're looking at you. There's a higher accountability because of that. So Eli confronts his sons, but unfortunately they don't listen. Notice it says, the end of verse 25, Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. Shows you how serious this was to God. Now, in verse 26, we're given another contrast. Notice it says, and the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor, both with the Lord and men. Here, the sons of Eli are causing the people of God to be grieved. They aren't well liked. God's ready to kill them. But Samuel, on the other hand, is growing in favor with God and man. God is smiling at him. And so are the people. And his life is a blessing to the Lord and to those in Israel, those who are are there. And that's the way that it should be. Your life being a blessing to the Lord as you honor God with your actions and honor God with your heart. And you are blessing God's people. So Samuel here, we see this contrast. We pick it up in verse 27. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? He's speaking there of the house of Levi. That was the priestly house. That was the tribe that was called to be the priest. Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar to burn incense and to wear an ephod before me? And, And I... And did I not give the house of your father all the offerings of of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people? Therefore, the Lord God of Israel says, I said, indeed, that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Now, listen closely. Eli did a good thing in rebuking his sons, but he should have done more. He shouldn't have just rebuked them, but he should have removed them. And because Eli did not remove his sons from their position in in the priestly ministry, God was going to remove Eli's family from serving in the priesthood. And there's several things that I want us to consider here. First of all, is that our actions can have a far reaching effect. Our actions can affect not just ourselves, but they can affect our immediate family. But they can also uh, affect others who are going to come along after us. Our actions can have a huge effect on the people in our sphere of influence. And even some of those who maybe are you know, a grandchild or, or a, a, a great-grandchild even. Is the effect that, that may be the sin in your life. Like maybe for instance. I'll give you an example. There's infidelity in a marriage. The marriage ends in divorce. And guess what? Not only are the kids affected. But their kids are affected. And then their kids are affected. And their kids are affected. And it goes on down the line. And so first of all. We, we need to see that our, our sin can have a far reaching effect. Secondly. Notice it says in verse 29 that by not removing his sons, what Eli was doing was he was honoring them above the Lord. And that's the second thing that we need to see is that when we allow our sin and compromise to go undealt with our lives in our lives, we are honoring that sin or in this case, honoring the sinner instead of, of honoring God. Basically, what Eli was doing here is he was picking his sons over the Lord. He was choosing them over the Lord. And how often is that scenario repeated in the church that there are those who give into sin? And in doing so, they're honoring. That sin, they're honoring that person above the Lord. When somebody, you know, a young single person gets involved in sexual immorality, even though they know that the Bible says when you engage in that 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that you're sinning against your own body and he who does so sins or destroys his own soul. That your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when you engage in that type of sin, you're defiling that. What you are doing is you're taking that person that you're having those relations with and you're putting them above the Lord. The Lord was here, that person was here, but all of a sudden what you're doing is switching it. You're honoring that person above the Lord. In a child's rebellion, instead of dealing with it as a parent, we ignore it or we, we kind of pacify that child. What are we doing? We're honoring that child over the Lord because the Bible says, spare the rod and spoil the child. Not, not spare the rod so you can spoil the child, but if you do, you're going to spoil the child. We're honoring that person. Or the, 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 in business, when somebody there that we work with is you know, cutting corners and we remain silent. We're honoring that person over the Lord. Eli was honoring his boys above the Lord and God was angry with him because of it. Because of that sin. You know, we live in an age today where, where we talk so much and, and rightly so. About the grace of God in the Bible. And we really emphasize that. That's been, it's one of the distinctives. You pick up the Calvary Chapel distinctives. There's a whole chapter on that. Emphasizing the grace of God. Emphasizing what God has done for you. Rather than emphasizing what you need to do for God. Because we believe the Bible teaches very clearly that what we do for God is only going to be in the right frame when we are responding to what God has done for us. But in this age where we emphasize grace so much, you know what happens? There's a lot of people and it astounds me at the number of people who will come into our offices for, for counseling with this type of a mentality. They're engaging in things that they know are flat out wrong. That God is, is against. But there seems to be this attitude of, well, you know, he'll forgive me. He'll forgive me. He's gracious. He's forgiving. And we've lost Sight a bit, I think, of that fear of God. And I'm not talking about, you know, hey, that God's got a stick. And if you step out of line, man, he's ready to just whack you and he enjoys it. You know, he's just waiting for you to step out of line. No, that's not the fear of God. The fear of God, biblically speaking, is an utter dread in your heart of doing anything that would displease him because you love him so much. Because you realize how much that he has given and what he has done and, 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 and what he's taken you out of. And, and there's that sense of like, I don't want to displease the Lord. I want to walk in purity. And yes, we stumble and we fall. And I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, about people that come in and go, you know what? I've been involved in this. I know it's wrong, but you know what? I kind of don't care. And I just, you know, God's going to forgive me. And we've been seeing that kind of, you know, attitude a lot. And it's alarming. People honoring sin above the Lord. Well, notice verse 30. The Lord says there, makes it real simple. He says, look, if you honor me, I will honor you. But if you despise me, well, then that's another story. Jesus gave this indictment against the religious leaders of his day. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Listen, it's easy to give lip service to God. It's easy to sit here in the pew and sing, I surrender all. But it's harder to live that out. And we need to watch, we need to consider, we need to be like David tonight and to search our hearts. To say, Lord, search me and know me. And see if there would be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, search my heart tonight. Search me that I might see, that I might consider, am, am I one who's just giving lip service to you? Singing the song, saying the right things, but my actions are not matching up with what I'm saying. Verse 31. Behold, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm and the arm of that of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. And you will see an enemy in my dwelling place despite all the good which God does for Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. But any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age and young in their young age. And now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons on Hophni and Phineas. In one day they shall die, both of them. And then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is In my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house and he shall walk before my anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and say, please put me in one of the priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. And so the Lord reveals here to Eli, that he's going to remove his family from that priestly ministry. And that those, you know, who don't die in the flower of their youth are going to cause his heart to grieve. Because of the sin of his two sons and his inability to deal with it. You know, God often does that in the the scriptures and in history. He takes those shepherds, those leaders who are not honoring him, and he removes them. And he places them with those who will. For a a little case study on that in your free time, read Ezekiel chapter 34 where we see the Lord dealing with the priest in that way. I want to move into chapter 3 for a few minutes here. We read, Now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days and there was no widespread revelation. And it came to pass at that time while Eli was lying down in his place and when his eyes had begun to grow so dim that he could not see. And before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord where the ark of God was. And while Samuel was lying down that the Lord called Samuel and he answered and said, Here am I. Now, here we see God calling out to Samuel, even though Samuel doesn't really realize that it's God at first. Now, this passage gives us some really neat insight into hearing God's voice. Not audibly like Samuel's, you know, hearing it here, but that still small voice that God uses in in just how he speaks to our heart today. And there's three things that that I want you to note very quickly before we go here concerning God. When God or or how God speaks to us. Notice, first of all, when the Lord spoke to Samuel in verse one, it says that when Samuel was ministering to the Lord. Here we see it again. We saw it there in chapter two, verse 11, that he ministered to the Lord. We saw it again in chapter or verse 18 of chapter two, that he ministered before the Lord. And then we see it here again in chapter three, verse one, that he's ministering to the Lord. Now, listen up, listen close. What Samuel is doing here is so vitally important. If you want to be one who is hearing the voice of the Lord, you need to be one that makes it your practice to minister to the Lord. What do I mean by that? Well, ministering to the Lord is that time that we spend in worship and in prayer. That time that we spend in in exalting him and praising him and, and then seeking his face. You see, there's a difference, and we need to understand this in the church today. There's a difference between ministering to the Lord and ministering for the Lord. They both have their place. Ministering for the Lord is the service that we do. It's it's when we teach. It's when we share. It's when we witness. It's when we're involved in helps. That's ministry that we're doing for the Lord. But what needs to come first... If we're going to be people of revelation, if we're going to be people of insight, if we're going to be people who are hearing that voice of the Lord, we need to be people who make it our practice to minister to the Lord. In Acts chapter 13, we read this of uh, the church in Antioch. Now, the church that was in Antioch, There were certain prophets and teachers and notice it says, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Paul or Saul for the work that I have called them to. This is when we see really the launching of of the the missionary ministry of the early church. When did it happen? When these guys were ministering to the Lord, the Holy Spirit spoke and he said, look, set apart these guys. For the work that I have for them. We need to make it our practice. God speaks to those who have first given themselves to ministering to Him. That's why Mary, Mary, the one who every time we see her in the scriptures, she's at the feet of Jesus. That's why Mary there, and I think it's John chapter 12, we see her anointing Jesus for his burial. She has this insight into what's about to happen and where he's going. An insight that none of the other disciples saw. Why? Because Mary was one who regularly sat at the feet of Jesus. And so she had this revelation. She had this insight. So first of all, notice when the Lord spoke to Samuel, when he was ministering to the Lord. Secondly, notice... Where the Lord spoke to him, that it was in the temple. Now, the Bible declares that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. In other words, God dwells in his people. He doesn't dwell in buildings, but he dwells in his people. And the Bible tells us that when two or more are gathered together in his name, that he is there in the midst of them. And so, as we gather here tonight in the name of the Lord, he's here in our midst. And oftentimes it's here in this place that God, he speaks to people. As we come together in this place, I have people come and tell me all the time after service. Did my wife call you? Did my husband call you? How did you know? Or you know what you talked about today? That's ex- we, were, we were talking about it on our way to church today. We were, we were talking about this very thing. We had this question and you, you answered it. God speaks when we gather in this place. God speaks when we gather in the home groups. When two or more are gathered there in in, in the temple, his people gathering together, God speaks there in that place. God speaks so often through a brother or sister. And yes, the Lord speaks to us in our morning devotion time, you know, as well as we're getting, you know, spending time in the word. But oftentimes he speaks to us through each other. In that fellowship time that we have. The third thing we want to notice is why God spoke to Samuel. And there's two things that I want you to know here. First, number one, in verses 5 through 10. I think he spoke to Samuel because he was responsive. Notice verse 5, it says, So he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. And he said, I did not call. Lie down again. And he went and he lay down again. And then the Lord called yet again, and Samuel and so Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. And he answered and said, I did not call you, my son. Lie down. Now, Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. The idea there is he didn't know the Lord's voice. And... Um, And then it says, And the Lord called Samuel again, verse 8, the third time. And so he arose, and he went to Eli, and he said, Here I am, for you did call me. And then Eli perceived that the Lord had called the boy, and therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down. And it shall be that if he calls you, that you must say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And so Samuel went and lay down in his place. And now the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel answered, Speak, for your servant hears. I believe that one of the other reasons why the Lord spoke to Samuel here is because he was responsive. Each time, it's the middle of the night, he gets up. He thinks it's Eli, first he runs to him and says, Hey, what do you want? You called me. No, I didn't call you. But immediately when he hears the call, he responds to it. Samuel is responsive. He's not ignoring the voice. He's not too tired. Does God ever wake you up at night? He does that to me sometimes. And sad to say, there are times when I'll wake up in the middle of the night, and I'm I'm a pretty sound sleeper, and I'll wake up, and and instead of going to the Lord, I'll go to the refrigerator. (laughs) Or I'll turn on the television, you know. And think, gosh, I can't sleep. You know, maybe I'll zone out for a little bit and that'll help. But I tell you, the times that I realized, hey, this is the Lord. It's been so rich. I take my Bible. I go sit down and God begins to just speak to my heart. And I would encourage you. And if God wakes you up in the middle of the night, it, it's for a reason. And be responsive to that. God is looking for responsive hearts. And if God's voice has become faint to you, listen, listen close. It's possible that the reason is, is because you were not responsive the last time that he spoke. You're here looking for new direction. And God is still waiting for you to follow with what he told you last time. You want some new direction. You want some new insight. And he's like saying, look, I already told you a month ago what I want you to do. I already told you a month ago what you need to take care of. And as soon as you deal with that, then I'll give you new revelation. So God speaks here. The first reason, because Samuel was responsive. Number two, God spoke to Samuel because of, I believe, his humble heart. Verse 11. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows. Because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. And so Samuel lay down until morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. Now, I want you to note this. When Samuel gets this heavy word of revelation concerning the future of the priesthood and Eli's family, when he gets this, he doesn't go barging into Eli's room and say, boy, do I've got news for you. He doesn't do that. No, it says that he went and he laid down. He he was reluctant. It's like he's like, gosh, man, I don't I don't want to tell you like this. He didn't go get on the phone and and call up, you know, five of his best friends and say, You wouldn't believe what God just told me, man. I've got the juicy stuff right now. He didn't do that. He had a humble heart. I don't believe the Lord ever shares this type of wisdom and revelation of this type of nature with those people who are eager to share it. Those people who want the inside scoop, you know, on everything. I think the Lord, he hates that kind of attitude. I know that I do. There was a lady who used to go to our church. She, their family moved away. They don't tend here, haven't for a long time, so don't try to figure out who I'm talking about. But she used to always do this. She always, you know, was like she'd come with, she liked to analyze everything. And She would come with all these questions, 100 questions. What do you think about this? And what do you think about this? What do you think is going to happen here? And, you know, who's going to do this? And what do you think, you know, and, and I'd be like, I don't have a clue. And I hated that. And I would like avoid her like the plague, you know. It's like, oh, no, here she comes, you know. And, and, and she just always wanted to know what's happening. Man, I don't think the Lord gives revelation or much revelation to people who are like that. But Samuel's heart blesses me. He just goes to bed. He's going to ponder this word from the Lord. He doesn't call his friends. He doesn't tell Eli. He's afraid to. But Eli's going to drag it out of them. And we'll close with this. Verse 16. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he answered and said, Here I am. And he said, What is the word that the Lord spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the things that he said to you. Then Samuel told him everything, kind of scared him here, and hid nothing from him. And he said, now here's Eli's response. It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. So Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. And then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Now, here's what I want you to see as we close this. The chapter begins in verse 1 with it saying the word of the Lord was rare in those days and there was no widespread revelation. But here in verse 21 it says, but then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. What's the difference? Why the change now in the scenario that God is suddenly giving revelation again? Here's the difference. The Lord found in Samuel a responsive and receptive ear. I want to close with this. The same thing is true in our lives. If God's word is dull to you, could it be, could it be the problem? It's not with God. It's never with God. But the problem is with us. It's dull because we're distracted. It's dull because we're approaching it in a lackadaisical type of manner. It's dull because we're not diligently seeking the Lord. We're not responsive. We don't really have that receptive type of heart. That's what was happening. That's where Israel was at. But all of a sudden, it changes, it switches. When Samuel comes on the scene and God finds a man who has a responsive, receptive heart and he says, man, OK, I'm ready to give some revelation again because this guy's ear is open. May we have that type of ear to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you that you do speak to us, that you've given Lord your word to instruct us, to teach us. And Lord, we Just want to rejoice in that tonight. But God, we also want to search our hearts. To see, Lord, if we have in any way caused there to be a dulling of your word, of your voice, of that sensitivity to your spirit. Because of sin. Or anything else that we've allowed to to creep into our lives. Lord, make us like Samuel. In Jesus name. Amen.